Have you ever wondered what goes on inside of a house immediately after you have rung the doorbell unexpectedly? Somebody's at the door. Oh my, who could that be? And then there is this instantaneous house cleaning job that goes on. I mean, rapid fire. And all of the um, newspapers and clothes and shoes that are scattered around on the floor just are dumped in this uh, nearby closet. That sound like anybody you know. Somebody's at the door and two teenagers on the couch break clean. <laughs> Somebody's at the door and two and a, a husband and wife who have been arguing over finances have to call time out. I've gone to doors sometime to ring the doorbell and I'd hear just this quarreling going on inside. It sounded like two Dobermans uh, fighting over a bone. And I'd start, you know, I'd think, well, I better not bother that. <laughs> but I'd go ahead and, and ring the doorbell and it'd just be this quiet and the door would open. Hello there, you know, just like nothing was going on. Somebody's at the door and so a shirt has to be buttoned and shoes put on and a sh shirt tail tucked in because there are some things you have to get ready for. Christmas is one of them. And I tell you, it's knocking at the door. And the church has always tried to prepare its people for the celebration of Christmas, convinced that we can never really capture the mystery and the wonder of the incarnation unless we are spiritually conditioned. The church has called on its followers to celebrate Advent the four Sundays prior to Christmas Day. And in this glorious season of Advent, we kind of reorient our minds to that historical event that brought the climax of 17 centuries of sacred history and in itself changed the history of the world. Advent celebrates the coming of Christ and we've never really exhausted, we never really exhaust the meaning of that event just by recalling the historical event of a birth of a baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. For the coming of Christ has a much larger, more immediate, more ultimate meaning than everything you could say about the birth of a baby in a barn. And so Advent takes Christmas and it puts it out here and it helps us to look at it from three dimensions. And there is no greater text than this one I have read for the celebration of Christmas or the celebration of Advent. First of all, Advent celebrates the past. And so the Apostle Paul said, grace has appeared. That Greek verb is grace became visible. And it is a metaphorical allusion to the incarnation, that marvelous night of nights when the invisible God became visible to man. And it's so heavy is this phrase so loaded that I want us to just look at its claim and its content and its communication, that is, its application. The claim of that phrase became visible is that God Himself became man. And it refers to the eternal Christ who had a previous existence unknown to man. 
And so when they came to Bethlehem to see him born, they came to see him who had always been. Now Jesus was, did not come into being at Bethlehem. He came into visibility at Bethlehem. He had always been. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Before there was a creation, before space and time, before Abraham went out and Moses led his people, Jesus is the eternal Christ, eternal, coexistent with the Father. The watchword of the, of the Protestant Reformation is that word. The key word of Pauline theology is the word grace, and it is the shorthand word for a divine self-disclosure. What does it mean? Well, everybody knows the definition of grace is unmerited favor. I think it has much more impact than that. It is the active favor of God bestowing upon one the greatest gift who deserves the greatest punishment. It is a self-motived thing. It is a self-originating love. Grace is the divine favor of God bestowing the greatest gift upon the one who deserves the greatest punishment. And it's significant that when it says that God manifested Himself, He manifested Himself in grace. For the most important thing we know about God is He is a God of grace. And if that word became visible is a metaphor pointing back to the incarnation, then it must mean that God revealed Himself in grace and that's the highest revelation He has of Himself. And Jesus was the self-embodiment of that grace. Grace flowed like a mighty current out of every movement of His life and ministry. He had a special perception. He could look down into the heart of man and know what He was really like. He had a special power that gave force to His words so that when He spoke, people listened to Him. When He taught, He had such power that, that He had authority with them. He had a special, a, a special persistence about everything He did. His forgiveness was unbounded. His mercy was immeasurable. His patience was interminable. His love was infinite. So that His was a life and a love that could not be stopped. He had a special peace about Him so that he could take everything that came in life and tower above it. He towered above men like the pyramids over the sands in Egypt. He towered above men like the skyscrapers over the streets of New York. He towered above men like the great trees out in, uh, in California over the flowers beneath them. He was a special man and his special characteristic was grace. Well, what is the communication of that? That is, how does that apply to me? Richard Baxter said, when you go to exegete a verse, be short on information, be long on application. What does it mean to me? It means that to love somebody is to give. And so it says in verse 14 that grace has appeared and He gave Himself for our sins. 
I think we're all familiar with the Peanuts uh, cartoon and we enjoy reading it, and so we are acquainted with Schroeder, the intellectual piano player, who is often interrupted by some deep question by Lucy, his admirer. And one day she says to him, kind of uh, uh, perplexed, she says, Schroeder, do you know what love is? And Schroeder stands up abruptly from the piano and speaks formally, love, noun, to be fond of, a strong attachment to or affection for a person or persons, sit down abruptly and begin to play again. And Lucy stands there with this kind of a puzzled look on her face and says, on paper, he's just great. Love on paper, love as a principle, as an abstraction, is not the Christmas reality. The Christmas reality is that love came in the person of Jesus Christ with feet and a face, love that came to give itself away. And that's what Advent does. Advent puts its finger firmly on the past and says, God has come in grace to save you. One professor in Oxford noted, it is the natural temper to look at the world and cry in despair. Look at what the world has come to. But he said, those early Christians shouted for joy. Look what has come to the world. That's what Advent does. Advent shouts with joy. Look what has come to the world. Grace has come for our sin. Forgiveness has come for our iniquity. Freedom has come for our bondage. It celebrates the past. But Advent anticipates the future. And so he says in the text, and we await the blessed hope the glory, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Advent does. It points with an eager gesture toward the imminent return of Jesus. And Christianity throbs with that hope. I was getting my hair cut uh, last week and I was talking to my barber and he was telling me he watched this um, uh, day after, the movie The Day After, which depicted this nuclear holocaust. Now, I know none of you saw that. Y'all were in church. Well, let me just tell you that it was a, a depiction of a nuclear holocaust. And he asked, he said, do you think that could ever happen? And I said, well, I'm, I'm certain it could happen. I said, you know, the possibilities of that happening are sure, are certain. I mean, you don't have to know anything to know that. And then I went a step further and I said, you know, the probability of that happening is, is uh, pretty strong. I said, as a matter of fact, I think most people feel that with every confrontation and crisis of the world powers, it makes that probability much more imminent. And then I went on to say, and got into my preacher uh, tones, and I went on to say that, but there is something that is much more imminent than that toward which we look, not with dread, 
and fear, but with hope and expectation, and that is the return of the Lord to the earth. How dare we ignore that great eschatological truth that Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth. He spoke often of it, did Jesus himself. He warned his followers in Caesarea Philippi, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. And it's impossible really to understand some of the parables of Jesus unless you see them against the background of that Advent hope, that second coming hope. And so he begins his great trilogy of the, of the virgin and the talents and the last judgment by saying when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And when Caiaphas asked him, are you the Christ of God or are you someone else? Jesus said, you have said it, but I tell you, hereafter you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And we cannot ignore that that great truth is found in every New Testament writing. These New Testament writers literally were gripped with the reality that Jesus was coming back. And so every morning they scanned the heavens for the first sign of the flaming of His advent feet and they bore up under terrible persecution and poverty supported by the belief that their Lord was coming back in glory to vindicate them. Just as the Old Testament pulsates with the hope of His first coming, the New Testament pulsates with the hope of His second coming. There's going to be a tremendous contrast between the second coming of our Lord and that first advent in Bethlehem, for then He came as a weak and helpless baby held in the arms of a peasant girl. When He comes the second time, He'll come as a sovereign Lord of heaven, surrounded by a retinue of shining angels. He came the first time and He was cradled in a wretched manger when he comes the second time he'll be seated on the throne of a universal empire he came the first time just to the sound of a muffled cry of an infant when he comes back the second time it'll be to the blast of God's trumpet waking the dead and summoning the nations before him he came the first time in the meanness of crushing poverty. He'll come the second time in the pomp and circumstance of a royal coronation. He came the first time, the outshining of His grace to save. He'll come the second time in the outshining of His glory to establish a universal kingdom. And that's what Paul calls the blessed hope. And he said, when he comes, he will, fulfill, he will fulfill his triumph in the world and bring us perfect peace and happiness. Is that your blessed hope? Does that hope just grip you today that Christ is coming back with such expectancy that as the Greek word suggests in the word await, you can actually welcome it today, even so come Lord Jesus. Is that your prayer? So that Advent 
celebrates the past and anticipates the future. But Advent also consecrates the present. I want you to listen again to this text. Follow with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, celebrating the past, instructing us to, de to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, consecrates the present looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that, we, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds, consecrates the present. Now, grace appeared in the past and glory will appear in the future. And in the interval between these two marvelous events, godliness should appear in the lives of every believer. For Advent says this, Advent says that Jesus Christ has come, and it says that Jesus Christ will come, but it also says that Jesus Christ is come. Let me tell you what happened to me last Christmas. Now, you know, I believed in Santa Claus um, and just looked forward to his uh, appearance. And I, you know, I've, um, I've loved Christmas better than any time of the year. So last Christmas, I decided I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make this the greatest Christmas in the world I've ever had. And I'm and I'm going I'm going to lead my church to make this a great celebration and and did, I mean we had us a fantastic Christmas season last year didn't we? We had the live nativity scene. We had all these spectaculars here in our church about Christmas, and we just zeroed in on the celebration of Christmas for about six weeks. About a week before Christmas came, I started getting this downing downer this. Depression. I mean, I, I began to get so empty and cold and, and uh, unhappy and depressed. And after Christmas was over, it got worse. And I was going to God and I was trying to pray and I, you know, I was just, I, I was asking, Lord, you know, what's the deal here? It was so cold and I was so cold and empty. And God said, you know, you spent all this time trying to remember the birth of Christ and you've just really emphasized that you've not walked with me in the present. You've forgotten to fellowship with me in the now and you've thought so much of, of making visible to, to everybody and celebrating this birth that took place 2,000 years ago that you've totally ignored me in the present. God said that to my heart. And I remember A.M. Bale's words and he said, it, it soon becomes a very painful and disturbing experience to have to keep straining your eyes to, some, to find some heroic figure that you have to strive to imagine visibly. Then he said, 
What we really need is the living God here and now. That's what we really need. Our celebration is, does not need to focus completely on the birth of a, of a baby 2,000 years ago. We need the living God here and now. And you say, well, that's great, but that's what Christmas is about, 2,000, a celebration of the birth of Christ born 2,000 years ago. But, I mean, he ascended when he was 33 into heaven. And we, we didn't, we're not back there any longer. That's true. But the staggering claim that Pentecost makes is that it's not necessary that we had known him like Peter and James and John to know him. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul did not know him like Peter and James and John. There is no evidence that he ever really saw him like that. But who is going to say this morning that the Apostle Paul did not live an extraordinary life? And you say, well, sure, but that's the Apostle Paul. He was an extraordinary man, not on your life. The Bible doesn't picture the Apostle Paul, put him in the pages of this book and hold it up to us and say, wasn't he a great man? Don't you wish you could, have, could live like that? That's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying here is an ordinary man who lived an extraordinary life because he somehow was made, he appropriated the power of the living God in his life through absolute surrender. And that same Christ is available to everybody out there and here. What this book says is that you don't have to, you didn't, it's not necessary that you knew Jesus like James and Peter and John. You can know him today just like that. And to know him is to be reborn. To, to know Jesus Christ is to be changed, it's to be different. It's to come to experience the power of God in your life. And in that phrase that we use too familiarly, it's to be born again. I'm not talking about turning aside to some old remedy. I'm talking about coming to know the Redeemer who gave himself for you. My parents were long on home remedies. If you've never had mustard plaster, and I know some of you are too young to know what I'm talking about, but if you've never had mustard plaster put on your chest for a common cold, you've, not, you've, you've never lived. I'm, that'll, that'll, that'll make your ears ring and your hair stand up. My parents were long on home remedies when I was a kid. We went out to New Mexico to visit my grandparents and I get this terrible tonsillitis and they made me gargle. They ought, they ought to have been arrested for child abuse. They, they made me gargle, true story, turpentine and sweet milk mixed. I don't know what happened to my tonsils. But after that, I never had been able to find them. They just dissolved in that, that uh, uh, turpentine and sweet milk, home remedies. And we kind of laugh at that. It wasn't a laughing matter then, but we kind of laugh at that in these 
Let me show you something. There are people who hear my voice today who have turned to every kind of remedy imaginable for the deep problems of their life and heart. And they've sought every kind of solution in these remedies. And they're just about as helpful as turpentine and sweet milk to strep throat. And I'm not saying that you try this old remedy. I'm saying come to know Jesus Christ who is the Redeemer. And He sets you free from bondage. And He forgives your sin. And He makes you brand new. That's the claim of this text. And Augustine was a wildly indulgent man. He ran with prostitutes. And one night, Augustine went into this garden and somehow God spoke to him and he found the Lord there and he was saved, marvelously saved. And he became a Christian increasingly so. And one day he met one of the prostitutes on the street. He just spoke to her and passed and she turned and cried to him, Augustine, it's me. And he turned to her and said, Yes, I know it's you, but I'm not who you think I am. And some of you have heard Gert Bahana speak. Gertrude Bahana was raised in New York City. Her parents were very wealthy. And she became a, a young debutante socialite. She said the only Bible she had ever seen was the Gutenberg Bible in the Smithsonian behind this glass. That's the only Bible she'd ever seen. The only time she ever went to church was to a wedding or a funeral. And she began her life, went through three husbands, three divorces, became an alcoholic. And one night at the request, at the witness of some friend, she got down on her knees in desperation and she cried out to God. And Gertrude Bahana, in her testimony, I've heard it on tape several times, she said, I don't know what happened to me. All I know is that I got out on my knees a sinner and I got up a saint. And she said one day one of her friends saw her on the street and said, Gertrude, for God's sake, what's happened to you? And she said, I looked back at my friend and said, God has happened to me. And that's the message of Advent. It says that God appeared in grace in the person of Jesus Christ and walked in grace on the earth. And he went back to glory and he's coming back in marvelous power. And in this interval, the other Jesus has come, the Holy Spirit, and He comes into the life of a believer to indwell Him. And in coming into His life, He transforms Him and makes Him brand new so that the living God is in the here and now. 
Now, wherever you are right now, if you're in this room, or if you're watching on television, I want you to do this for me. I want you to come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I'll ask you now to invite Jesus Christ into your life. The God who made you is here in the living now. And if you'll trust Him as your Savior, if you'll just ask Him into your life, He'll make all things new, the Scripture says. And the same power, the same transforming power that changed men like Paul and Augustine and women like Gertrude Bahana is available to you. It's as near as your breath. The word is nigh thee, the Scripture said, even in thy mouth that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart, God hath raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Right now, with the breath, with the heart, will you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Join me in prayer. Father, we thank thee that you came in the person of Jesus Christ grace became visible. Thank you, God, that you came to live among us and to be our Savior. Now the response to that great event is up to us, a response of faith. Give us the faith to believe, the faith to receive the grace, the gift of grace, the life that grace offers. I pray that in this moment, each of us will respond in faith to you. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Now look this way. We have three invitations. The first invitation I've already alluded to, that is the invitation to become a Christian. Wherever you are right now, all that's necessary for your salvation has already been accomplished. All you need to do now is just trust Jesus and Jesus alone. Confess Him with your mouth. Invite Him into your heart. Ask Him to be your Savior. Trust Him right now. Then if you will do it, you come publicly and make that profession of faith. Declare your faith in Christ. The second invitation is for you to come this morning and join, unite with the church. The way, best way God knows, has chosen to do His work in the world is through the church. This is the place where God wants you. Come and join us. Come and give your life to Christ in a time of rededication of that life. Tell Him you're sorry for your sin, the fact that you've drifted away. Ask Him for that forgiveness to renew your heart. Come and do it right now. The easiest time to do it is on the first word, the first stanza. So we'll stand and the choir will sing. We'll ask you to come right quickly.